together, if you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, find the book of Exodus. After a brief break, we're back with the Israelites walking through the desert. And we come now to the destination that they've been waiting so long to get to, to arrive at Mount Sinai. And we come to the mountain of God. And let's dive in together, Exodus chapter 19. The word of God says, On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the people, told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man. He shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come down to the mountain. They shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. 
Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, and do not let the priests and the people break through to come to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, This is the word of the Lord. We come to a new section of the book of Exodus, sort of a part two of our Exodus journey, focused in on the Ten Commandments. And while people are familiar with the Ten Commandments, typically, they're not always as as familiar with the intro leading up to it. And I know a lot of people, when they think of the Ten Commandments, the first thing they think about is rules. In fact, one of the most common objections to Christianity I hear is that, man, that faith stuff, all it is is rules. Have you ever heard that? There's rules to follow and rules to obey. And and this objection actually hits two different types of people two different ways. First, to the ones that are more naturally rule breakers, you know who you are. You hear that that the faith is all about rules, and this is a reason for you to reject it. I mean, who wants to be a rule follower? Isn't being a rule breaker so much more fun? When you hear that the faith's all about rules and you have a more rule-breaker personality, it causes you to view faith with the spirit of anarchy. I'm going to do what I want. I'm not going to listen to what somebody else tells me to do. But then there's the rule keepers. You know who you are. You're the ones who are always driving exactly the speed limit. Not one degree above, not one mile Per hour below, you do exactly the instructions that the teacher and the parents have told you. For you, there's comfort in knowing that there's rules, and you will walk exactly according to them. But I think for the rule keeper, sometimes thinking about the rules and the law takes away something unique from the faith, because there was rules everywhere, right? And now there's rules in the faith too, and this can be a source of anxiety for some. Am I following it? Am I walking just right in it? But let me me offer a whole corrective. Whether you're a rule breaker or a rule follower, here's a corrective here. Christianity is not all about rules. It's actually all about grace. In fact, the whole point is we're going to come to the law is that none of us can keep the law. And that's why we need God's grace to save us and to transform us and to enable us to even begin to keep it. And Exodus 19 wants to offer us a necessary introduction to the Big Ten, not the Big Ten Conference or anything like that, but to the Big Ten, to the Ten Commandments. We all know when people think about rules or moral living, the Big Ten are the ones people think about. And we come to a unique point in the book of Exodus. The people have made their way through the wilderness. They've come to Mount Sinai. And think about this. They're going to remain at Sinai. We're here at Exodus 19. They're going to be at Sinai for the rest of the book of Exodus, all of the book of Leviticus, and the first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers. They're going to be at Sinai for almost a year the biggest moment in the life of Israel and one of the central moments of the Bible. And the law of God, particularly the Ten Commandments, plays a central role in the life of Israel and also in our life as New Covenant believers. 
but we are tempted to misunderstand the nature of the law. First, I think we're tempted to misunderstand because we believe that rules and grace are opposed to one another. That law and love are enemies. Hear this. Bad laws are an enemy to love, but true love always makes and abides by loving laws. I think we understand this deep inside, right? We've seen over the last several years an outcry from our culture when injustice is done and people are wronged, right? We see that bad laws are not loving. Bad authority is not loving, but good laws are an act of love. Law is never meant to be meaningless, but God's law certainly isn't. And so here's the point. Exodus is going to walk us through, Exodus 19, five reasons that God gave us the law. Five reasons before we ever get into the particulars of the Ten Commandments, which we're going to do beginning next week. We have five reasons that God gave the law, and the passage begins with love. In fact, the first thing we see is that the law was given as a display of love. That's the first thing we need to see. Law and love are not opposed, but they're friends to one another. The first three verses of Exodus 19 give us the setting of the Ten Commandments and really the entirety of the law given at Sinai. Israel came to Sinai, it says, on the third new moon after leaving Egypt. In other words, it's been about three months that they've been wandering, trying to find a snack, grumbling, being thirsty. They've been wandering for about three months now. They arrive here. Verse 2 says they set out from Rephidim, which was the rest stop, right? And they've made it to their destination. The Israelites are now camped at the base of the mountain of God, and Moses ascends. Just feel the tension as Moses, you see him begin to just disappear up into the mountain, and a cloud descends, and God begins to speak to Moses. And look what he says, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Before ever giving law, God reminds them of his love and grace. He's redeemed them from Egypt by his power. He's led them and bore them up on eagles' wings. He's brought them to himself. I love the picture of an eagle here because if you know, if you know anything about eagles, as they care for their young... They're going to teach them how to fly. They'll carry them everywhere. And then whenever they fly, if they begin to fall, the eagle will swoop down. Mama eagle will swoop down and grab them and make sure that they're safe. And I want you to think about this incredible image. God has been carrying his people. And he has been catching them when they fell into bitterness and complaining in the desert. See the love of God carrying his people, and he's brought them to himself. And I would venture to say God loves us and cares for us in the same way. He's not simply a mama eagle for the people of Israel, but he has bore us up on eagle's wings and brought us to himself. And one of the points we need to see throughout this passage is that law is never the pathway to God's presence. Only God can bring us into his own presence. 
Only love can bridge the gap between our heavenly father and his sinful, stumbling children. Before the law was ever given, there was love shown. Redemption precedes rules and obedience to the rules. This is actually right at the start of the Ten Commandments. If you flip over to chapter 20, before we ever get one of the commandments, we see this. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land, out of the house of slavery. See it. Grace precedes law. Love precedes law. Parents understand this, don't you? I want to say this, young people. Parents in your life, the guardians, the adults in your life, they don't put rules in place simply to be a fun sucker. But they do it because they love and cherish you. We understand this. Love precedes law. Look how God continues. Go back to Exodus 19. Look at verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and he shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. There begins to be some tension here, doesn't there? Because in one sense, he's saying they are these things, but in another sense, he's wanting them to walk in these things. God is inviting them into a covenant relationship, into a personal relationship. Just like he made a covenant with Adam and Noah and Abraham, now he's making a covenant with with the nation of Israel and he's calling them to obedience. But I think we're quick to jump to, if you will indeed do these things, before seeing that the the verse starts with, now, therefore. (laughs) It's as a start by looking back and seeing that God has rescued you and redeemed you, seeing a greater way for us here in the church that God may not have redeemed us out of, out of Egypt, but he's done something far greater. He has redeemed us out of slavery to sin. He has loved us and given his son to die and rise again for us. And if God can show us this sort of love, certainly we can love him in return. Certainly, we can abide by law in light of love. Law begins with love. God calls the people to look back and to see that, but God also called them to look forward. He doesn't want them to simply be stuck in, well, here's here's what God did for me, so I'm going to try to pay him back with what I did. He doesn't want that attitude. He wants them to see what he wanted and desired for them, to walk in their purpose. Here's the second reason that God gave the law. The law was given to teach God's people their purpose. It was given to teach them their purpose, to show them what it meant to be set apart, what he redeemed them for, and what he saved them for. Notice he said that the law and its obedience wasn't necessarily making them something they weren't already, Because let me tell you, you don't redeem a people who aren't already your treasured possession. (laughs) But rather, he's saying, he's inviting them to live in light of what God had called them to. Obedience to the law doesn't determine your identity, but it displays it. (laughs) 
It shows if we understand and believe and revere the one who's given the law. Let's look back at verse 5 and 6. And look at this. He starts by saying that Israel is his treasured possession. This is the language that you use for a child, for a son. Exodus chapter 4, actually, all the way back there, God called Israel his son. And here he repeats this theme in no uncertain terms. They are the apple of his eye. They are his dearly beloved. They are his treasured possession. And the law was given that they might live like they're loved. <laughs> that they might live in light of that. They're not living according to the law in order to earn God's love. Because, friends, that's a losing game. If you're simply obeying and hunkering down, going, man, I hope God loves me in light of this, you'll never live in the freedom God calls you to. But you've got to start by recognizing that God loves you and then live out of that. The order matters immensely. They're going to live in light of the fact that they're loved and so that they might display the love that they've been shown. They're his treasured possession. Second. He calls them a kingdom of priests. They're to represent God to the world. They're a kingdom under God and under his rule, but they're also a priest offering access to God to the world. This is actually what it means to be made in God's image. You know that we often think of being made in God's image as well. We kind of look like God. And that's some of it. Sure, we have characteristics that God has, but to be an image in this day and age was to be a representative of what the one you're made in the image of looks like. And here he says, Israel, you were collectively a kingdom of priests, a kingdom that could bring access to the one true God to a lost and dying world. Friends, God has saved us to be a kingdom of priests. You can go look uh, in your free time later today at 1 Peter chapter 2, where he uses this same language of us as his people. And finally, he calls them to be a holy nation, a set-apart people with a unique calling given by God. And this was a covenant that was meant to ensure that they knew that and that they lived in light of it. Think of a covenant some people will say, well, a covenant's sort of like a contract. I think that's a little too weak of what we're talking about here because we enter into contracts all the time, right? This is really more like a marriage or, well, what marriage was, was meant and instituted for, not often what our culture might defame it to be like. This was a commitment on both parties, and it was a commitment that God had shown his commitment to by already redeeming them out. And now he calls the people to live in light of it. And it's not that obedience to the covenant makes the covenant valid any more than obedience in your marriage somehow makes your marriage more valid. It's not like, well, if I keep my covenant, that's going to make the marriage active or not. No, the marriage is true because you've committed to it, right? In the same way, friends, we, so he, he's calling us to think about it this way. We love them. So we serve them, and we serve them because we love them. It's a cycle, right? God has entered into covenant marriage with his people, with the nation of Israel, and he loves them, and he's given them the law to show them what love for him looks like. Let me illustrate it this way. Anybody here who's been married wish that whenever they married their spouse, they got 
like an instruction manual on exactly how their spouse works. <laughs> Anybody here wish they got that? Friends, God's a much better, God's a great husband to Israel. He literally gives them the rule book. Here's how to understand how to live in light of these things. Here's what it looks like to love and to serve. He's given his word so that his people know their purpose and what to expect. And he's given us, friends, even more than Israel ever had, right? Because he's entered in with us, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says, a greater and better covenant through Jesus. And he hasn't simply told us what to do. He's actually given us the spirit of God to enable us to do it. Because, friends, it's one thing to know what to do. It's another if you can't do it, right? And, friends, we've been given something far greater than Moses and the people are given here in Exodus 19. God has given us his son, and he's given us himself to dwell inside us through faith. The law was given to show them their purpose. But it was given for another reason. See, we'll use analogies like marriage to talk about God and his people. And, and those, those analogies are good, but we got to know that so, analogies only go so far with God, don't they? There's certain parts where, well, your, your husband, I don't know if you figured this out, ladies, but your husband isn't God. <laughs> Amen, right? And fellas, your wife, She's not God, right? But here in this relationship between Israel and, and God, one of them is God. One of them is holy and set apart and the perfect and righteous judge of the universe. And Israel, like us, is sinful and imperfect. They're never going to live perfectly in light of all that God's done, right? The analogy only goes so far. And that's why we see the third truth about the law. The law was given to protect from death. The law was given as a display of love. God is loving his people by going, here, I've redeemed you. Now live like a redeemed people. He's given them their purpose in order that they might walk in light of those things. And he's given them the law to protect them from death. Pick up with me, Exodus 19, verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. So Moses ascends up the mountain. And I'd be starting to freak out if I was one of the Israelites on the bottom because a dark cloud ascends over and they probably heard things shake and thunder and lightning. God comes down and he offers a scary yet exciting warning. And he says, I'm going to do this, Moses, so that one, they listen to you and that they see you as the mediator and the leader for the people here. But God came in a cloud partially to show that the people simply couldn't enter into the presence of his glory on their own. Look at verse 9. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Sinai in the sight of the people 
He shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up on, into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain, whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man. He shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. God calls Moses to prepare the people. Take two days. Consecrate yourself. Prepare yourself. And he actually says this law was meant to set a limit for them. Don't touch the mountain, the man or the beast, or you shall die. And some of us probably think, man, that's real extreme. But let me tell you, try something like this if the president were ever standing out on the front of the White House. Try charging up toward that and see if a similar response doesn't happen to you, right? When we come into the presence of someone of great authority, great, uh, great guards are put in place, right? He says, here, I've set the limit for you. Wash your clothes. Don't get distracted and become unclean with other people. The third day is coming. And the law was given, as Exodus 19 shows, to protect the people from death. God is holy. He desires all people to experience life and not to walk in the way of death. And that's why God gives rules. He sort of moves from the picture of a husband and a wife to a picture of a father to a son and a parent to the children. You know that there are rules you put in place in order to keep your child from hurts. Don't play in the streets. Hey, don't, don't play with fire. Don't touch the top of the oven. And God says here, I am putting this in place to protect you from harm, both physical and spiritual harm. Friends, God loves us enough to put guardrails in our life. And he says, hey, you can't come into the presence of my holiness and my glory on your own. He sets limits around them. The people stood on holy ground. God was coming to them, and the law was a means to protect them because they were a people of unclean hands coming before a God of perfection. And this gives us the fourth reason that God gave the law. Fourth. The law was given to bring conviction of sin. The law was given to bring conviction of sin. Let's pick up verse 16. We're at the third day. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. The whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. See the incredible scene. Imagine being there. And friends, you know you're in the presence of something holy and other when inanimate objects begin to shake. 
And then the people follow right along. I'm going to do what the mountain's doing and tremble. And God descends in lightning and fire and in a cloud. Where else has God ever descended in fire up to this point in the Bible? Well, Abraham, right, he had an encounter with God back in Genesis 15 where God appeared to him as a fire pot and a flaming torch. You'll remember back in Exodus chapter 3 at the very start of of Moses' sort of journey of being the leader of God's people. He encountered God in a burning bush that was not consumed. And friends, now the whole nation was getting their burning bush moment. This is, a, this is a warning. Some people say, man, I just wish God would come down and appear and speak to me. Friends, Exodus 19 is a warning. Be careful what you ask for. <laughs> Be careful wishing for God to make his presence known. <laughs> because when the holy God appears, the people tremble. The mountains tremble. And part of the reason the people needed to tremble was because the law had been given. Because the law shows us our own lawlessness. The law exists to show us that none of us have kept it. If if you think that we come together as a church because any of us are perfect, you've missed the point. We've walked in this door to check the sinner box. (laughs) To go, I've broken every single one of these. I'm imperfect. I'm in trouble. The New Testament describes the law as a ministry of death, as taking us prisoner, as holding us captive, as veiling us from the glory of God. Because the law by itself only shows us how great God is and how far we fall. That's why law keeping will never save you. That's why if many of you, I, I know I before I became a Christian, I thought, man, if I just kind of live according to the Ten Commandments, and I live a pretty morally good life, I'll be okay. Friends, the whole point of the law is to show you can't do that. It's the reason we tremble as we come before a holy and perfect and righteous God. The law brings conviction of sin. It puts a name to the sins we commit. It pierces our hearts. The law is like a mirror showing us the deepest depths of our soul. In fact, the Apostle Paul says as much in Romans chapter 7. He says this, Romans 7. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. You see it? The law kills us because it reveals the very nature within us. The commandments which promise life can only produce death because we can't keep them. Friends, you will never be saved through through keeping the Ten Commandments because none of us have ever kept all Ten Commandments. Perfectly and without falling. 
we can look at plenty of these, and we'll look at plenty uh, over, obviously, the next several weeks. But even think about how Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that, hey, the law is more than even what you outwardly do. Matthew chapter 5, he talks about how, hey, you may not have committed adultery, but if you've ever looked with sinful intent upon a woman or a person that was not your spouse, you've committed adultery already in your heart. If you've ever sat and had hatred towards somebody, that you've already committed murder in your heart, the law exposes us because in one sense, the law is very bad news. The law is bad news when we are people who've broken it. But the law can also give way to good news. And that's because, friends, the law doesn't simply leave us in conviction. It points toward our need for a mediator, for a go-between. We need the best defense attorney that money can buy. <laughs> and Moses is sort of acting almost like a mediator or a defense attorney here as he goes up to the mountain. As we read in Psalm 15, none of us can ascend the hill of the Lord. None of us can come into the presence of God because I don't know if you heard what we read at the start of the service, but I'm not, I, I haven't kept all those things. But look what happens. Moses ascends, verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the people, the people cannot come up to Sinai for you yourselves warned us saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through and come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So the people can't come up. Moses had to be a mediator, a go-between, between God and the people. In this chapter, if you notice, he makes several trips, three trips, in fact, up, down, up, down. Up, down. But friends, even Moses was not a perfect mediator. <laughs> You're going to come to see Moses is going to blow it big time. And it's only for the mercy of God that God didn't just, didn't just break out among all the people. Moses is going to blow it. But God in his grace called Moses to be this mediator, this go-between, this peacemaker between sinful God and the holy, between a sinful man and a holy God. But Moses is not the end of the story. In fact, the law is here to show us that even Moses wasn't perfect. We need another mediator. We need another righteousness. We need something else to allow us to come into the presence of God. Here's the fifth reason God gave the law. The fifth reason is that the law was given to prepare us for Jesus. Friends, the law was given to prepare you and I for the coming of Jesus. We're going to see this more as we go through the law in weeks to come. But friends, Jesus is the perfect priest. He's the one who can ascend into the very presence of God because he is God himself. He is, we're going to read about the tabernacle, the place where God dwelt with man. And consider this, God and man perfectly dwelt together in the person of Jesus, fully God, fully man to dwell among us. 
that Jesus is a new and better Moses who can actually bring you into the presence of God because he never sinned. He perfectly kept the commandments. And he has come forward to be a sacrifice, not simply to forgive us of our sins. He does that, but he actually offers us a perfect righteousness. If you could think of our obedience to the law like a bank account, friends, mine is way in the negative. I'm in a lot of trouble. I'm overdrawn. I just I can't do it. But Jesus is Friends, his bank account of perfect obedience is infinitely in the positive. And the good news of the gospel is when we place our faith in Jesus, our bank accounts switch. Jesus takes the punishment, do our, do our disobedience. He pays all the fines. That's why he died on a cross. And then we receive his perfect righteousness. And God doesn't simply look on us now as forgiven but looks on us and sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, the law prepares us for Jesus. The Apostle Paul actually tells us as much over in the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 3. Look at this. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. He says that the old covenant... What God is establishing here at Sinai was a guardian. That's the Bible's way of saying it was a babysitter. <laughs> it was sitting and guarding us and preparing us for the coming of Christ. Friends, babysitters aren't forever. The old covenant was temporary by divine design, but it pointed forward to a new and better and everlasting covenant made through Jesus. We can never be justified, which is just the Bible's way of saying set right before God through coming through obedience to the law. We can only get that through faith in Jesus. Adoption as a son or daughter of God doesn't come through the law, but through union with Christ. We're no longer under the guardian, the babysitter of the law, because Jesus has come that we might be justified by faith. And friends, that's, that is what Exodus 19 is preparing us for. And let me show you, it's actually right in the text very subtly. Jesus is here in Exodus 19. Now, did you notice when God descended on Sinai? The third day. That's exactly right. And we don't have time to look at this all today, but the third day plays a major role throughout the Bible. Let me give you some examples. God brought life from the waters on the third day of creation. Isaac, you know, when, when Abraham goes up with Isaac on the mountain to, to sacrifice him, Genesis 22, Isaac's brought back down on the third day. Jonah is spit out by that fish. On the third day, 
The prophet Hosea speaks of God raising his people again on the third day. The third day is the day when God brings new life and makes a covenant with his people. And that's exactly what God is doing here at Sinai. And friends, the significance shouldn't be lost to us now thousands of years later. God did something even greater on a third day, didn't he? Jesus died, but friends, he rose again on the third day to bring new life and to secure an everlasting covenant. And it wasn't through the blood of bulls and goats, but it was through the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He made a covenant no longer on stone tablets, but written on our hearts through the Holy Spirit coming within us. Friends, one where God didn't have to dwell in a cloud, God could dwell with us in the flesh. See it, law and love are not opposed. Because love prepares for the law, and the law prepares us for gospel love. The law was never to contradict God's grace. Here's the point as I close. The law can bring you to the foot of Sinai, trembling before the holiness of God. If you've been trying to just live your life very morally, trying to go, I'm just going to check the boxes. I'm here on Sunday. I give. I'm, I'm in a small group. I mean, I, I tried to, to not to not say that word this week and have those thoughts. And I'm just kind of going to try to do it in my own power and hope that I'm pleased with God. Friends, that sort of living can get you to where the people got in Exodus 19 at the foot of Sinai with God's holiness before you, shaking and trembling before the presence of God. But Jesus and faith alone in him can bring you to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Jesus can bring you into the presence of God because he, one, is God in flesh. Two, has lived the perfect life you and I could never live. And he has died and risen again so that we can follow him right into the kingdom of God. And then this is by faith. And faith alone, see the mercy and love and grace of God of saying, hey, none of you are perfect, so I'm going to bring you into my presence myself. I'm going to bear you up on eagle's wings and bring you to myself. That is the mercy and grace of God. We must come to God by grace through faith alone in Jesus, not through obedience to the law. And our response should be what Hebrews chapter 12 says. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is an all-consuming fire. Friends, the words of Sinai are meant to bring us toward a better mediator. And today, if you're hoping your obedience will get you there. If you're hoping that your family line will bring you there, if you're hoping for anything other than Jesus to get you into the presence of God, friends, then I've got both bad news and good news. The bad news is the law will only kill you. But the good news is that God has made another way, a new and better way through Jesus Christ. And today, if you need to place your faith in Jesus for the first time, you can do that 
I'll be in the back at the end of the service. I'd love to talk with you, pray with you, and show you the way to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. But may we who know this Jesus stop trying to come through Sinai, but come to the kingdom of God with reverence and awe and the worship that, he's, that he deserves. Let us stand and let us pray together. Father in heaven, we know that you've given us the law because you love us. And that the law is both a sign of your care for us, but it's also bad news because we can't keep it. Lord, may we stop trying to rely on ourselves and our own wisdom and our own power and our own law keeping. And may we just today lay it down at your feet. Maybe we even need to, to visually show what you're doing in our hearts to lay it down at your feet. And Lord, to point and look by faith toward the one who's made a way, a perfect way into the presence of God. Maybe look to you, Jesus, and give you the worship and the praise and the honor that you're due. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Keep me from the counsel of the wicked. Keep your light upon the ancient path. Chaff will blow away and all the flowers fade, but only you and your word will last. I delight in you. I delight in you. Like water, you satisfy my soul. I delight in you. I delight in you. Oh, day and night, I delight in you. I delight in you. I delight in you Like water, you satisfy my soul I delight in you I delight in you All day and night I delight in you Jesus' name. Amen.